of Revelation. We've begun a study of this, this book. We've purposely been going very slowly through it. I'll tell you why in just a, a second. Um, but one of the things that uh, became apparent to me as we were beginning to work our way through the first eight verses of this book, which is really where John lays the foundation of this, this whole rest of the book for us, so it's, it's, it's been important for us to make sure that we understand the things that he's saying. But one of the things that, that dawned on me as, as we came to verse 8 is I believe that this is, I, I believe that in the time that we're living in, that in a doctrinal sense, this is a strong church. We, we took two years to do something that I, I would, I mean, I still can't believe that we did that two-year stint in church history. I mean, we, we took two years of Sunday mornings to cover from Revelation 2 and 3 the history of, of the church. And as we began to do that, and as we began to cover from the time of Jesus Christ all the way up to the present time, what God outlines for us in, in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, we covered a lot of doctrine. In fact, I, I think that was the greatest thing that happened to us as we were coming through that study is we found out why we believe. Now, we believed a lot of stuff for a lot of years. We just didn't really know why we believed it. But to be quite honest about it, I'm not trying, you know, if you're a guest with us today and from um, some other persuasion, I'm not trying to get under your skin right now, but, but as a church, you know what we learned through church history? We, we learned why we're not, we learned why we're not charismatic, didn't we? We, we? we learned what was going on in the book of Acts to see the transitions that were going on there and why you can't just go in and pull doctrine out of one place when the Holy Spirit's doing one thing here, something completely different over here. And we began to go through and find out that if you rightly divide the book of Revelation, or the book of Acts, those things are clear. And, and so we understand some things about, you know, I mean, that, there's a lot of hype right now going on in, in those, uh, that arena, and, and we can go to the Word of God now, and doctrinally. We, we don't have to be all freaked out. We can just go and say, here's why we're not. We know why we're premillennialists. We know why we're not trying to work and trying to labor to, to bring in a kingdom. We believe that the world's just going to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus Christ comes and he sets up his kingdom. And he'll make all things right when he gets here. He's not left us to get this thing right because we just keep screwing it up. I mean, the longer he waits, man, we just continually make this thing worse and worse. So, and and we, we've gone and we, we know the place of the Jew in the Bible. We know that we better not run the risk of, of causing there to be blasphemy because Revelation 2.9 talks about the fact that there are people who call themselves Jews who aren't Jews, and he says, you know what, that's the synagogue of Satan. You don't want to go there. And, and so we, we know. We know why we don't put conditions on salvation doctrine. We know why we don't add baptism. We know why we don't add tradition. We know why we don't add works. We can go to the Word of God. We can show those things. But when it comes to the most important doctrine of all, I mean, that doctrine that is above every other doctrine in the Bible, it became apparent to me when we, when we got to verse 8 of Revelation chapter 1 that maybe we're just not as equipped with that one. And here it is, the most important doctrine in all the Bible. And... and we, we, we talked about uh, several weeks back, just introducing this. What I did is I played devil's advocate with you. You remember that? And I began to undermine the deity of Jesus Christ that is clearly spoken in verse 8. I began to undermine it. And, and 
if you're honest, there's a lot of you folks on that day that were going, not really knowing for sure how to answer that thing. And I was doing all of that to just get us to perk up our ears because I think that we think that as a church we're doctrinally just sound as we can possibly be. But we struggle just a little bit when it comes to actually taking our Bible and proving this the most important doctrine in all of the Bible. So we come to verse 8, and this is where he lays it out. He he lays it out for us in verse 8. The doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. And if that word is a new word for you, this thing of deity, what that simply means is that Jesus Christ is, say it, God, not a God, but the very God. And, And in hitting that, what I've been trying to do over the last several weeks is I've been trying to take that teaching of verse 8 and I've been trying to put it into the context of the time that we are presently living in. Because you see, folks, we are living right now at the threshold of the events that are recorded for us in the book of Revelation. We are living at the threshold of those events coming to pass. I just mentioned the fact that in in Revelation 2 and 3, there are seven letters to seven churches that outline for us, and we'll see this in the next couple of weeks, and we are going to be picking up the speed here in the next couple of weeks. Trust me. Um, But in Revelation 2 and 3, what he he talks about there is is that there are seven periods of church history, and what he outlines for us, and, and those of us that were here for church history, we already know this. Others of you, you're like, okay, prove it to me, and we will. But we are living in the seventh and final period of church history right now in 1997. We can chart it uh, historically. Right around 1901, we entered into that last period of church history, the Laodicean uh, period. And you need to know something. You need to know something about the period of time that we're presently living in. You see, we know that's where we're living in. And as we begin to go and look at what the Bible says is going to be characteristic in the last days, God has some very key things that he wants to say about this period of time in terms of doctrine. Okay, here we are in verse 8. We're dealing with the most important doctrine in the entire Bible, a verse that just dogmatically asserts that Jesus Christ is God. But we need to understand with this doctrine, we need to understand what the Bible says will be true about doctrine during this period of time. You don't necessarily need to turn there, but if you're a Berean and you haven't, I mean, maybe this is the first time that you've, you've been in this church and you want to make sure that all these things are true. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse, verse 3, speaking of the very time that you and I are, we find ourselves living in, God says, that this is a period of time that will not endure sound doctrine, but during this period of time, what men will do will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. In other words, they'll rally around themselves teachers who tell them all of the things that they want to hear. They will tell them all the things that they like to hear, And the Lord says through Paul that those teachers will turn the people's ears from the truth. Okay, that's that sound doctrine. And it says that the people shall be turned unto 
fables unto out and out lies, and yet not just fables. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, it says of this very time that we are living in, it says that some shall depart from the faith. Okay, and there it is again. There's that sound doctrine that is recorded in Scripture as the faith. And there will be people who will depart from the sound doctrine of the faith, listen, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now, folks, that is what is written about what is going on in a doctrinal sense in our lifetime. And if you haven't been here over the last several weeks of this study, you, you need to understand that this, this turning from sound doctrine of the Bible for fables and all of this departing from the faith as it is revealed right here again for us in the Word of God for the doctrines of devils, you need to understand that this is something that is taking place right now in the name of Jesus. These are not people who are, are trying to, to uh, present themselves as some satanic operation. This is taking place these seducing spirits, people departing from the faith, people being turned unto fables. This is happening in our lifetime, right now, before our very eyes, in the name of Jesus. You know, over the past several weeks now, we've been, been applying uh, these, these verses that we were just seeing about what's taking place doctrinally during our period of uh, time that we're living in. We've been applying these things to the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ that's laid out for us in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. And I've been showing you why this is the most important doctrine in the Bible. And without going over all of the ground and all of the verses that we cover, let me just take you to one verse that capsulizes the, the teaching that we've been doing over the last several weeks. And this verse will be a great verse for us because it will also be used as a springboard to take us where we want to be going this morning. And that verse... It's found in the book of 1 John, just a couple of pages to your left if you're still in Revelation chapter 1. The book of 1 John chapter 2. And look with me at verse 22. And if you're newer to the Bible, if you're, you're newer to this whole thing of the Christian life, let me just tell you, let me just warn you, John is going to be using some majorly strong language in this verse. Look at verse chapter 2 and verse 22. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He's saying if you want to know what the epitome of a lie is, if you want to know the biggest lie that has ever hit this planet, it would be that Jesus Christ is not God, that Jesus is not the Christ. And look what else John says. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. And that's what we've seen over the past couple of weeks as we've been looking at this, this teaching concerning the, the deity of Christ in the book of 1 John. Then last week, we, we went into the book of 2 John. In fact, do you realize what we did last week, y'all? We, we taught, actually, in this church, an entire book of the Bible in one Sunday, verse by verse. We went through the book of, of 2 John, man. It's, it's taken us, whatever, 13 weeks to get to verse 8 of Revelation, but we, we kicked off a whole book last week, and not even one stinking pat on the back, back for that, I must say. 
But what he does is, he, in the book of Second John, is he, he talks about these people, and in the book of First John, who deny that Jesus Christ is the one true God of the universe, that one true God who came to this earth in a human body. And what John is letting us know here in verse 22 of the book of First John, and he lets us know this throughout this entire book of First John, and over in Second John, what he lets us know is that everybody... Who, who stands and opens the Bible, anybody who stands and, and at your doorstep and, and begins to quote the Bible or begins to s- supposedly speak for God, what he begins to teach us here is that person is a mouthpiece. W- what he's saying is they are just the human instrumentation, that there is a spirit that is working behind that human teacher that you can look at that you can reach out and touch there is a spirit that is working behind that human instrument is merely the mouthpiece and he showed us over in 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 first john chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 that they are either speaking for the spirit of truth which john 16 13 clearly defines as the holy spirit the spirit of truth or they are speaking for the spirit of of error, which is defined in 1 Timothy 4.1 and all through First and Second John as the spirit of Antichrist, actually Satan and his devils. Now, guys, listen. That's some strong stuff. Uh, what, what he's saying here is a false doctrine concerning the deity of Jesus Christ is not just some minor little error. It's not just a distorted doctrine of men what he is saying is it is a demonic doctrine that is being propagated by satan himself and listen it doesn't matter what else they believe it doesn't matter how nice they are apart from that truth what john is letting us know here is that is the source of their teaching it is satanic, it is demonic, and you see, one of the ways that they get people to, to listen to them, this is the way that a lot of people in fundamental Bible-believing churches listen to these folks. They'll say, well, well you, know, you know, maybe we do have different ideas about Jesus, but at least we believe the same things about God. You see, oh, I mean, if you just heard what they just said, but at least we believe the same things about God. And, well, we may have differences concerning the Son, but at least we agree with what we believe about the Father, right? And you see, and people are going, because they want to be nice for a change. People want to be nice. Oh, yeah, 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 you're right. Well, God bless you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John says, no, that's not the issue that we're dealing with. What he says here is you deny that Jesus Christ is God, we don't agree about the Father. Because you deny the Father also. And he says that teaching is satanic, it's demonic, it's antichrist, and it's a lie. And like John says here, it's the biggest lie that ever hit the planet. Someone says, well, you know, I, I just don't like to go to a place that is, you know, that dogmatic about things you know that just kind of rubs me the wrong way you you need to understand it's not me and it's not this place 
the Bible rubs you the wrong way. Because that's the issue that we're dealing with. I'm not saying it's Antichrist. I'm not saying it's satanic and demonic and that you're a liar if you believe that God did. And so, and I'm not trying to, you know, be smart aleck with you. You need to understand what the real issue is if you don't like that dogmatism. Because the Bible is very dogmatic. And, and notice how John words this again in verse 22. Who is a liar, but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, now, now what, does, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? You know, we, we talk an awful lot about Jesus Christ. Okay, my name is Mark Trotter. Okay, Mark is my first name. Trotter is the way that we distinguish from, you know, Mark Straits and you know Mark Albaugh and we can go through all of the other Marks in the church. Okay, I've got a last name. I mean, a lot of people think that well, Jesus is first name, Christ is a second name, and that's that's not the issue here. Okay, Jesus is his name. Christ has to do with his position. Jesus is the Christ. Now we don't do a lot of Greek and Hebrew stuff because we believe that God gave us a Bible in the English. But this will we're not uh, we're not trying to to show off our, our intellect because I, I know a, a little Greek, I know a little Hebrew. One guy sells bagels down there, the other guy is, does pita and all that kind of stuff at the other end of the block. But I don't know a whole lot about Greek and, and Hebrew and all of that. But it is important for you to understand what this word Christ is all about. The word Christ, the word is translated from the Greek, it's Christos in, in the Greek, and it means anointed. Now, the Hebrew word for anointed is the word Messiah. Okay, and, that, and that's why I'm bringing this, this point up. The Greek is Christ, and all it is is really just transliterated for you in your English Bible. It's Christ. And in the Old Testament, the word anointed, it, it, the word in the Hebrew is Messiah. And that's why sometimes we refer to Jesus as the Christ. That's why sometimes we refer to him as the Messiah. And you see, the way that God structured your English Bible for you, and this is, this is to me, I just, this blows my mind, the way that God does this thing. You don't have to be a Hebrew or a Greek scholar to know that. You know what? God will tell you that right in your English Bible. Let me show you. Go back to John, the Gospel of John now. John chapter 1. Because God makes that connection for us in this chapter. And in John chapter 1, this is when Andrew is, is, is taking his brother Simon to Jesus. And he, he's, he's, he's trying to get him to come with him. And, and notice what it says in verse 41. He, that, that is Andrew, he findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found... The Messiah, the, the Messiah, which is being interpreted, the Christ. You see, you don't have to be a Hebrew or Greek scholar to know that. God says, now let, let me just help you. Hebrew is written, or the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Greek. And so for all you English-speaking people out there that are one day going to get God's final authority in your own language, let me just help you. That word Messiah in the Old Testament, it's the same as the Christ in the New Testament. Okay? Okay, now, now we're going to see this as, as we, we get in, into this this morning. That in the Jewish mind, 
their understanding was that Messiah, the one that they knew that had been promised in the Old Testament that would come, who would be the anointed of God, that would be the Messiah, they believed that he would be, in fact, God in human flesh. And the point I'm wanting you to see, okay, now over to 1 John chapter 2. The point I'm wanting you to see in verse 22 of this second chapter is that the critical issue is whether Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. Was he the anointed one promised in the Old Testament? Was he, in fact, God in a human body? And John says here that he was, and anything less than that is a lie right out of the pit of hell, literally. But how do we take our Bibles and actually prove that? How do we actually take this book and see that Jesus Christ is Jehovah God? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some irrefutable proofs uh, this, this morning and, and next Sunday morning, but there are, first of all, some basic understandings that we've got to get under our belt as we're going to launch ourselves in, into this whole thing. So we're going to just take a, a little bit of time to introduce some things that are not just fraught. We are going to use these to build this whole proof of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I, I want to just I want to talk to this church. You, you've got to get to the point where you begin to see that the Bible is your toolbox. Okay, Everything that we believe is, is right here. But, you see, with your toolbox, you've you got to learn how to get around in that thing. Everything you need is right here. But you ought to put some things in your Bible to help you get around in it so that you know what kind of tools to use at different times. And I'm telling you, one of the things you need to get in there is how you can prove from this book that Jesus Christ is Jehovah God. So take good notes and find a place to transfer these somewhere into your Bible so that any given point in time, you've got it right where you need it. Okay. Now there's some, some key things that you need to understand about the names of God in the Bible. In the Old Testament, which is, of course, where we've got to begin, because that's where God himself began, as he was revealing himself to his creation. And in the Old Testament, there are three key Hebrew names that are ascribed to God. The first one, it's on your study sheet there, is Jehovah, or Yahweh. And it is the name of God that is applied only to the true God. See, that's why there is a group of people on this planet that call themselves the witnesses of Jehovah or Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? Because they understand that this word in the Old Testament is the name of God that is applied only to the true God. The Hebrew definition of the word Jehovah means the self-existing one. In other words, the one who has always existed, but I love, again, the way that God does this thing. You don't have to be a Hebrew scholar. What God does is he gives you a biblical definition of that thing over in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. And over in, in Exodus chapter 3, in those verses, Moses asks God, okay, now when I tell you, you're, you're sending me, and that's, that's real cool, God, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. But when I tell the people that you sent me, uh, who should I tell them you are? Okay, what's your name, God? And God answers Moses by giving the definition 
of his name. He said, Moses, tell him, I am that I am. And as I said, God's very stingy with that name that he calls himself Jehovah. It is used only in reference to himself, the one true God. And over in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4, maybe some of you are still in the book of Revelation there, you can look back at verse 4. God gives you the biblical description of, uh, of his name. He describes himself as him which is and which was and which is to come. Okay, All that is is just talking about the fact that he is Jehovah the self-existing one, the one who has always existed, the, the great I am that I am. There's a second Hebrew name for God in the Old Testament, and it is the word Elohim. Now, you know what, guys? We're, uh, we're not just going through a little song and dance on these little Hebrew names and all this. Listen, all this is going to come together for you in just a little while. So we're just, we're just putting the pieces on the table right now. We'll start using them in just a minute. So, so grab this now. The second word in the Old Testament is the word Elohim. And this is the most common name for God in, in the Old Testament. And it's a word unlike the word we just looked at, Jehovah. This word, Elohim, is used to speak both of the true God and the false gods of the heathen world. Now, and you'll see that distinction because when it's talking about God as being Elohim, it'll be a capital G, and the other times it'll be a small g. But it's the same Hebrew word. Now, its exact meaning is somewhat uncertain. It seems to, to speak of being great and mighty. And the reason we know that is because sometimes the word Elohim is translated with those words. Sometimes that word is translated in your English Bible, great. Sometimes it's, it's mighty. But something to, to note about this word is the fact that it is a plural word. And that's why on the sixth day of the creative week, when God prophesied the fact that he would create man in his own image and likeness, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 says, And God said, and that word God there is Elohim, and God said, let, what's the next word? Us make man in our image after our likeness. And that, of course, God uses that word there, and it specifically uses that one because God is trying to let you know something about him, and that is that he is three, and yet he is one. Just like 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7 says. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Listen, and these three are, say it, one. Now, folks, if you've got a Bible that doesn't have 1 John 5, 7 in it, or 1 John 5, 7 is footnoted, telling you it's not in the, the, the original manuscripts or it's not in the best uh, and oldest manuscripts, I'm not trying to be smart with you, but I would suggest to you that you go shop yourself for a Bible that has 1 John chapter 5, 7 in it so that you don't have a Bible in your hand that is undermining the very nature of the Godhead. He is three, and yet he's one, and you check out the, a lot of the modern versions have yanked that sucker right out of there. You go from 1 John 5, 6 to 1 John 5, 8, and the New American Standard, what they've done is they've reworded verse 6 
to make it, verse 7, so that you wouldn't put your antennas up and, under, and think, what's the deal here? Where's verse 7? It, it, it's, it's real crafty. And then there's a third name for God in the Old Testament, and it's the word Adonai. Adonai. And the word Adonai simply means master or lord. And certainly God is that, but the word is also used of men, men who are the masters over their servants. You see, that's why I was telling you at the beginning that this word Jehovah, nobody else gets that title. It doesn't matter who you are, what kind of God you proclaim to be, or what kind of big cheese you, you God reserves that title for himself. Now, you understand that? That's just real basic, okay? Now, there's a lot of times in the Old Testament that you'll see the words that we've just talked about there, Jehovah, Elohim, Adonai. Sometimes you'll see those words joined to each other in various combinations to become, uh, like sometimes you're reading in the Old Testament and it says, and the Lord God said. and Or uh, sometimes it'll be, and God the Lord began to, you know, whatever. Okay? What that is, is it's a combination of, of those, those words. But this is, again, God has done something masterful with your own English Bible. Now, we've been talking a whole lot about this Hebrew trash. You really don't need all of that. Because do you understand that in, in your English King James Bibles, the translators made the distinction for us concerning these names. Now, a lot of you don't know this. But they made the distinction in these names in the English so we, no matter where we are, we'd always know what we're dealing with. Okay, and this is one of those things also, one of those little keys that you ought to get in, in some blank page in your Bible or, or some margin of, of your Bible so that you can re remember this. But listen, every time that the King James translators translated the Hebrew word Jehovah, they let you know that by translating it into the English word Lord, and this is number one on your, on your outline, put, put Jehovah next to number one where it says Lord. But if you'll look at that word Lord, look at it. They use a large capital L with smaller capital O-R-D. Do you see the way that is there? It's... no. It, I, I'm, it's smaller capitals, okay? Small capital L with a smaller capital O-R-D. You follow me? I'm not saying lowercase. Smaller capital, but the, it, it's a larger L. Now, when they were translating the Hebrew word Adonai, that's number two, put Adonai there, they let you know that they were translating that word into the English word because they translated it Lord, but they used capital L with lowercase. O-R-D. Okay? When it's the Hebrew word Elohim in, in reference to the true God, our God, it's capital G with lowercase O-D. Okay? That's Elohim. Number three. And then, now, now check, okay, now do you understand that? So it, as you're cruising through your Bible... When you see that word, like in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. Okay, it's capital G-O-D. What word is it? Okay, you see, you, you got it. You, you already know what you're dealing with, with there. Okay, now, what, what is neat is you see this distinction even 
with the combination of names. For example, number four, when the Hebrew word for God is Jehovah Elohim, okay, that's what you're putting on that blank, when it is Jehovah Elohim, Jehovah is translated Lord, and it's capital L, smaller capital O-R-D, and Elohim is translated God, and it's capital G, lowercase O-D. Now, when the combination, this is number five, when the combination is Adonai, Jehovah, Adonai is translated Lord, and it's capital L with a lowercase O-R-D, and Jehovah is translated God, but it's capital G, and look at it, smaller capital O-D. You see that? And then when the combination, this is number six, when the combination is Adonai Elohim, Adonai is translated Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, and Elohim is translated God, and it's capital G, lowercase O-D. Now, do you see that? You don't even, you don't even need to know Hebrew. All you've got to do is just be aware. Now, let me just ask you. How many of you knew that the Bible had that little key in there? How many of you didn't know that? Okay, good deal. And you know what? I, that'll help you. That'll help you if you understand what's going on there. In the King James translators, we're trying to do everything they could possibly do. In fact, I even checked this thing out. I've got a, I've got a page in my office at home. I've got a page of a 1611 Bible. Uh, it's not the first one, but it is, it's dated 1611. It's got the certificate of authenticity and all that. And I checked it out, man. And way back there, when they were... You know, using those that, that old type letter, it's the same exact deal. That capital L, the smaller capital O R D when they're dealing with Jehovah, it, it's all back there. But the reason I'm going through all of that is not just to well, isn't that just nice there, Beth? You know, it's we're not just trying to you know throw out you know oh those are interesting little things we got there. There's going to be some very important things as we begin to move into this thing of proving the deity of Christ, okay? We're going to use those things. Okay, now, here, here's the four, first point that I want you to see. Number one, the fact that the Old Testament predicted a divine Savior would come. This is what I was talking about a little bit earlier with, with the Jews. The Jews understood that there was one coming who was going to be divine, who was going to be God, who was going to be their Savior. Okay, and you see, this is, this is so key because there's a lot of people, as Frank was mentioning a little bit earlier, they have a hard time understanding how the true God of the Old Testament, Jehovah God, could be Jesus Christ. And not just the fact that it's the one God thing, but they know that Jesus Christ was a man. He was a literal man who was born into this world at a particular point in time and was made of flesh and blood just like all of us. So how in the world could he be Jehovah God dressed like that? But you see, God prophesied that very fact all through the Old Testament. I mean, there is no reason in the world that anybody need to doubt the deity of Christ because of his humanity. That was clearly prophesied that God would come to this planet that way. For example... In the second psalm, and turn over there if you would, 
Psalm 2. <clears throat> I'll give you just a second to get there because first thing I want you to note is on your study sheet. So get Psalm 2. You'll see that first point underneath this on your study sheet is Psalm 2 is what is referred to as a messianic psalm. That is, that this is a psalm that is prophesying concerning the Messiah, or as we saw from John 141, the Christ. Someone says, well, you know, that, that's great. <laughs> Here you are, you're going to start proving this thing, but you're going you're to make your point by reading into the passage that this is talking about Jesus. I mean, how in the world do I know that Psalm 2 is it's talking about Jesus? Well, you know that it is because God tells you it is. I mean, God makes a specific point in the book of Acts. In fact, you know what? Hold your place here in Psalm 2 and go to Acts 13 for just a sec so that I want you to see this. God's just laid this book out, folks, that if you'll study it, it all lines up, man. He's given you every single thing that you need. And over in the book of Acts, God wants to make sure that there's no question in anybody's mind. In Acts 13, the Apostle Paul is preaching to the Jews. And the theme of his message, you know what the theme of his message is? It's the same theme of this message, that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, and, and listen, listen to what he says in Acts 13, verse 33. God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, here it is now, as it is written, where? In the second psalm. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Okay, so do you see that? Anybody need any more proof that Psalm 2 is speaking about Christ? Okay, now go back to Psalm 2 now. And watch what it says in verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear. Now look closely at, 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 at the verse there and tell me who the Lord is in this verse. Jehovah. Now you see how you've been helped with that thing? Okay, he's talking about Jehovah. Serve the Lord or serve Jehovah with fear and rejoice with trembling. Watch verse 12. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And what we have in verses 11 and 12 is what is called Hebrew poetic parallelism. Just write that in, and I'll explain it. Hebrew poetic parallelism. Now, guys, this is something that is employed all through the, the Psalms. You see this in Job 38, 7, where it talks about the sons of God and its poetic parallelism that's being used there to talk about the fact that they are the morning stars. It's not a different group of people. It's poetic parallelism. And what poetic parallelism is, this is where the writer will make two parallel statements that are the logical equivalent of each other. And the phrase in verse 11, serve the Lord or serve Jehovah, is parallel with the phrase in verse 12, kiss the Son. In other words, serve Jehovah means kiss 
the Son. Kiss the Son is the logical equivalent of serve Jehovah. And when you back up and, and you, you look at this whole psalm, what, psalm, what you find is that it presents the Son as identical in character and rank as the Father. Look back at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, who is it? Jehovah, and against his anointed, or against his, what? His Messiah, the Christ. Okay, now, what verse 2 is talking about, this is in reference, doctrinally, to the time at the Battle of Armageddon when the kings and the rulers of the earth corroborate against the Lord Jesus Christ at that final battle, and you see it here again, the psalm says, they gather against Jehovah, they gather against the Son, the Messiah, the anointed of God, gathering against Christ, is gathering against Jehovah. That's the teaching of the passage. Now, let me show you another one over in Psalm 10. Psalm 110, excuse me. Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is another messianic psalm. Not because I want it to be. Not because I say it is. The writer of the book of Hebrews identifies it that way. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 13, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17. All of those places are places that quote Psalm 2, applying the teaching to, to Jesus Christ. We won't take the time to go over there. Hebrews 1, 13, Hebrews 5, 6, Hebrews 7, 17. Okay, and what, what, uh, look with me at verse 1, Psalm 110. The Lord, that is Jehovah, said unto my Lord. And again, the book of Hebrews lets you know who David was referring to as my Lord there. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. That's specifically what the book of Hebrews says. And the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And the point is, a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, David already recognized that the Messiah existed, that the Messiah was his Lord and Savior, and that the Messiah would one day come to this earth and mete out his judgment upon his enemies. And note this about this psalm. Psalm 110 isn't just my argument to prove the deity of Christ. If you really want to know what the, the strength behind this thing is, did you know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself used this very psalm as proof of his deity in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22? And I, you do need to turn over there and see this, Matthew chapter 22. And in Matthew 22, the, the Pharisees are trying to trip Jesus up. They had decided that Jesus wasn't the Christ. He wasn't the Messiah, and so they're trying to catch him in something to prove that he, that he wasn't. Now, the Sadducees, and you see the Pharisees and Sadducees, these are all the religious bigwigs during the time of Jesus. And the, the Sadducees had already been given it their best shot to prove that he wasn't Christ, and every time that they tried it, he shut them up. And then the Pharisees thought they'd give it a shot. You see all of that in verse 34. It says, but when the Pharisees 
had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. And they were gathered together to try to silence him. So they give it their best shot, verses 35 and 36, and they ask him a question. He answers in such a fashion in verses 37 to 40 that they weren't going to you know, be able to get anything to go off on there. But then in verse 41, Jesus returns the favor, and now he's got a question for them. They've been trying to trip him up, and so now he's going to show them who's boss. Verse 41 says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Okay, now this is still in that same context. When they're gathered together to try to trip him up, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? And you see, he knows that they don't think that he's the Christ. So he asked them, Oh, okay, this, this, this one who is who's promised in, in the Old Testament who will come to this earth as the Christ. Go on, verse, verse 42. Whose son is he? He say unto him, the son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, and here he's going to begin to quote this thing, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And watch verse 46, I love this. No man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. I mean, they finally got the idea, you know what, we're not going to trip this guy up because every time he does, all he does is just prove his deity all over again. But he's not the Christ. Even though he keeps proving it, he's not the Christ. Okay, and the point I want you to see here is Jesus knew that a proper understanding of Psalm 110 proved beyond any shadow of a doubt that the Christ who would come would be the Savior of the world, that He pre-existed His physical birth and was in fact God. And He calls Psalm 110 to their attention. And after He's all done with that, not only did they not ask Him any more questions about that, they didn't ask Him any more questions about anything because they understood who they were dealing with. You see, the Old Testament was very clear that the Christ who would come was God Himself. And perhaps Isaiah makes that more clear than anyone else. Turn back to the book of Isaiah chapter 7, if you would. Isaiah chapter 7. And I want you to see the prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 14. Actually, there's a, a double prophecy here in Isaiah 7.14. Verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And that's the first part of the prophecy. You'll know the Messiah has come by a sign. That is, He will come by way of a miraculous birth or a virgin birth. A virgin having never physically been with a man, which is what a virgin is, she will conceive and give birth to a son. Okay? And here's the second part of the prophecy. And his name shall be called Emmanuel. And you know what Emmanuel means? It means God with us. And again, you just got to love the way that God's lined out this English Bible for you because of what he does over in the fulfillment 
of this verse in Matthew chapter 1. Turn over there and check out what God does for us here. Now, we're going to come back to the book of Isaiah. Uh, you can find it again, I'm sure. I should have told you before we left, but we'll be coming back there. But you need to see this. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, Joseph finds out that Mary is with child. And at this point, the only thing that he really knew about that child is that that child wasn't his. He knew that he had never been with Mary, and here she comes up pregnant. And, and, and verse 20 says, well, While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. In other words, Joseph, Mary is the virgin of Isaiah 7.14. This is what the angel is, is saying to him. This is the one who, who would conceive having never known a man. And the angel goes on in verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And you should know from our study of the book of Joshua what the, the name Jesus means, right? What does it mean? Say it. Jehovah is salvation. You see, that's why the rest of the verse is there because what it is doing for you is you, it's defining the word Jesus for you. For he shall save his people from their sins. The reason you're calling Jesus is because he is Jehovah, that is salvation. For he shall save his people from their sins. Verse 22. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Now which prophet would that be? That would be Isaiah, right? Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which, here it is, which being interpreted is God with us. Now he didn't tell you that over in Isaiah. He told you that right here and of course that's exactly what the lord prophesied in isaiah 7 14 verse 23 it's the same exact thing now just a little footnote here you'll notice that the spelling of emmanuel is different here than it was in, in isaiah 7 14 did you see that here it's with an e and over there it's, it's with an i okay and again we're dealing with the new testament was translated from the greek and so emmanuel in the greek is spelled with a e and it's just transliterated in your english bible Emmanuel in the Hebrew is with an I, and so it's, it's with an I there, and that, that's what's going on. But one of the beautiful things about this quote from Isaiah 7:14, going from the Hebrew to the Greek, is God included right into the New Testament text, the interpretation of this word Emmanuel, so all people in all time would know that and, and, and even if they didn't know Hebrew, so that they would know, so that they would never have any doubt whatsoever about who this one that was prophesied in Isaiah 7:14 would be, that would come of this virgin, so that nobody would ever be able to doubt who he really was. God spells it out exactly who he is. He is God. He is God with us. He is Jesus, Jehovah, Jehovah who was born into this world of a virgin to provide our salvation. And now go back to the book of Isaiah. Let me show you the other names that the Old Testament prophesied of him that further prove his deity. Look at Isaiah chapter 9 this time. And look at verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9. And look at verse 6. 
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. So we, 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 we know the context. This is in reference to the son that would be born of the virgin who would establish on this earth a governmental kingdom over which he will rule and reign, which of course is Jesus Christ. There's no question about that. And watch what verse 6 goes on to say, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, check this out now, the Mighty God. This child, this son, is none other than the Mighty God. And if that doesn't seal it, and you see, you know, folks, it does. It does seal it for any person who is honestly seeking to know his identity. But even if someone wanted to say, well, you see, what happened here, the reason he's called that is because at a certain time in, in eternity past, God the Father created him before he created all things. And so, yeah, he's a God, and, and he's even a mighty God, but that doesn't mean that he's equal to the Father. Well, the, the next title blows that theory right out of the water because check it out. This child who is born, this son who is given, is the Father. And just so we know that it wasn't just a title that he acquired or a position that had been delegated to him, it says that he is the, what? The everlasting Father. He's the eternal Father. You know what he is? He's the self-existent one. The one who had always been and will always be coexistent, co-equal, and co-eternal with the Father. And the prophet Micah comments further on this same point. Turn over there to see his prophecy, if you would. Micah chapter 5. and Micah 5, you'll remember, is the reference that the, the chief priests and the scribes quoted in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6 when Herod had asked them, uh, about the Old Testament and what the Old Testament had prophesied about where this one who would be born, who was king of the Jews and, and all of that. He's, he's trying to find out the location so he can kill him. And you remember what the, the chief priests and scribes did? They quoted Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 because it prophesied the birthplace of the Messiah. Okay, and here it is. Look at it. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Now we just we already know who that is. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Whoever this guy is, he's the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. And watch what is said about this one who would be born in Bethlehem, whose goings forth have been from of old. In other words, he existed before his birth. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, but his goings forth have been from of old. And again, so that no one could ever come along and have a leg to stand on that, that you know that God had sometime long ago in eternity past had created him or whatever, he says, his going forth have not just been from of old, but what? But from everlasting. This one born in Bethlehem is the everlasting Father. Now you see, just we, we, what have we gone through? Is that five verses? Is that E on your outline? We, we've come through five verses. And you know what? It's already proved it, hasn't it? it? It's already proved the fact that Jesus Christ is God. I mean, it's just as clear as it can be. 
So how can something that is so clear to us, I mean, come on, we, we've only actually been on this about 15 or 20 minutes now. How can something that is so clear to us be so unclear to them? I wanted to take you over there. We don't have time because I want to hit just uh, uh, some other things just real quick that will help us immensely next week. But listen, if you want to know how it is so clear to us and so unclear to them, this afternoon, just jot this down, Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. You know what God says in verses 1 through 9? That if you go to the Bible with preconceived ideas, you know what you'll get? Just what you want. If you don't want him to be God, you know what? You can go to the Bible and get exactly what you want. And God says, I'll give you just what you want. Check it out. I mean, that, that's, not, that's not even a real deep paraphrase right there. I mean, God just flat out says, you come and you act like you're inquiring, but you've already got your mind made up. And you know what? You'll walk away from that thing getting just exactly what you want. You know what? It's weird. The Bible is the greatest book in the world to go to heaven with. And it's also the greatest book in the world to go to hell with. You see, you come to this book, it's God's book, man. And you better let him teach it to you. You don't come with your preconceived ideas because you'll get whatever you're looking for. God says that. Okay, but how would they ever argue with those verses in that first point? I mean, come on. I mean, it just was spelled all right, right out there for you. Well, let me tell you. If you're dealing with, with someone who's well-trained in their system, what they're going to say is, yeah, you know, all of those are, are fine, but I want you to notice that none of those actually specifically said that Jesus Christ was Jehovah. Oh, yeah, I know that the name Jesus means Jehovah is God, but there were other people that were named Jesus, so that really doesn't prove anything. And, and you know, a lot of those verses, like you told, said there with David, my Lord said unto my Lord. Did you notice that that word Lord there, my, my Lord, that's Jehovah? But it, then it comes to the other word, and it's Adonai. Do you see? It, it doesn't really line up. So none of those places, now, now you know that the argument is bogus, because they're getting what they want there, you see? It's a bogus argument. But, you see, this is why I made this its own separate point. The Bible specifically, this is point number two, the Bible specifically refers to Jesus Christ as Jehovah. And you see, now folks, this is monumental. This is an irrefutable point, because you see, since the Jehovah's false witnesses believe that Jehovah is the one true name of the one true God... You following that? That's the one true name of the one true God. So, if we can just come up with some verses that specifically apply the term Jehovah to Jesus Christ, then it would just automatically annihilate their entire theology, right? Is that true? Okay, so let's see. Are there any verses like that? Well, there are, okay? Go back to the book of Isaiah again, and, and we'll hit these real quickly, y'all. Happy Father's Day to you. Happy Father's Day to you. Isaiah chapter 6. Oh yeah, Happy Father's Day, man. This is for you. I've done this sermon. I've wrapped it for you for Father's Day. Isaiah chapter 6, and this is a very familiar passage of Scripture, one that we've referred to a whole lot over the past several years. It's where Isaiah was writing about the vision that he received when he was caught up to the very throne of God 
he saw God himself high and lifted up. He talked about his train filling the temple. And, you know, here's the angelic host. You know, I mean, they're crying out. You know, the whole heaven scene, holy, holy, holy. And, blah, 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 you know, the, the doors are moving and everything's shaking. And everything. I mean, you just, man, the glory of the Lord and, and his holiness and all of that. Now watch Isaiah's response to it all in verse 5. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. This is because he's seen all of this. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Who did he see? Lord, what is the word? Jehovah. Okay? He saw Jehovah, Jehovah God, in all of his glory. Okay, now, hang on that, y'all. Hang on it. You'll love it. Turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. In John 12, beginning in verse 37, John 12, John begins under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, but though he... Now, I want want to make sure that we've got the context, okay? The he there, it's Jesus... There's no doubt about that. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah, who is that? Isaiah. Okay, again, dealing with the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Isaiah. But he says, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report. Okay, what, what chapter is that? Isaiah 53, right? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah said again, and now he's going to quote another place in the book of Isaiah. Let's see if we can find out where it is. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. And now here comes the crushing blow. Verse 41. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Saw whose glory and spake of whom? Christ. That's what John said. Well, well, the book of Isaiah said it was Jehovah. Get the point? Hello? I mean, you following that? The Holy Spirit prompts John to put it right here to show you and me that what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6-5 was Christ's glory. And he spake of Christ because Jesus Christ is Jehovah. There's no doubt about that. Now turn to the book of Isaiah once again, this time Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 is another very familiar portion of Scripture because it's a very famous prophecy concerning John the Baptist. You'll recognize it when we get there. Isaiah 40. Look at verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. Now, there, again, no doubt about who this is in reference to because Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, tells you specifically that it was John the Baptist preaching about the fact that Christ was about to begin his ministry. It even says in, in Matthew 3, 3, 
This is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Okay, and this is this passage. And it goes on to quote this, this, this verse there in Matthew 3.3. 3. So we know who John the Baptist was preaching about. He's preaching about Jesus Christ. But watch how Isaiah identifies him here. Look at verse 3 again. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And who is it? Jehovah. You see that? Hey, no problem. The Bible says Jesus is Jehovah. John the Baptist is going to come out preaching, Prepare ye the way of Jehovah. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And when the prophecy is fulfilled in Matthew 3, 3, Jehovah God is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me quickly show you another one. Turn to the very next book of the Bible, the book of Jeremiah. And make your way over to chapter 23. And look at Jeremiah's prophecy in verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. Behold, behold the days come, saith the Lord Jehovah, that I will raise unto David a righteous, capital B, branch, and a capital K, king, shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Folks, no doubt about that in anyone's mind who Jeremiah is prophesying about. There is coming out of Jehovah a king, a branch, a Messiah. Now watch verse 6. In his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord or Jehovah our righteousness. Again, another specific reference where Jesus Christ is referred to as Jehovah. And then uh, let me just show you one more today and, and we'll pick up from here next week. Turn over to the book of Joel, which is just five books to the right. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. And look with me at chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. And listen to Joel's prophecy in verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, okay, and there it is, it's Jehovah, shall be delivered. Folks, if you are going to be saved, it is going to be because you call upon the name of Jehovah God. Is that clearly what Joel 2 verse 32 says? And turn over to Acts chapter 2 now. Peter is preaching Jesus to the nation of Israel on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, showing, I mean, his, the theme of his message, y'all, same as this one. Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. And notice in verse 16 that he takes them back to the prophecies in the book of Joel, okay? And in verse 21, he quotes to them the verse we just read in Joel 2.32 that said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of Jehovah would be saved. But Peter quotes it here to the nation of Israel in reference to Jesus. And if you doubt that, just look at the very next verse, verse 22. The Lord whose name you better call upon to be saved is Jesus of 
Nazareth. You know why you better call him that one? Because he is Jehovah. And turn over to the next book of the Bible, the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10. And you'll notice in verse 13 that Joel 2.32 is quoted again. It says, for who, and almost every single one of us that have ever led a soul to Christ, we bring it down to this verse, don't we? And this is, this is where we come to. For whosoever, you can put your name in there, you know, right? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Joel told us who the Lord is that you better call on. It's Jehovah. And Paul uses that verse here just like Peter did in reference to Jesus Christ. Look back at verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, whom? The Lord Jesus. And shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Folks, listen. We really could stop here. Now, we're going to stop for this morning here. But I, I want to give you the full meal deal, okay? And, and next week, we're, we're going to wrap that all up, and it'll culminate with Revelation 1.8. And then after we've set that introduction, we're going to start making our way through the book of Revelation as we've been known to do. I mean, covering two verses a week, you know, that kind of thing. But would you listen? Okay? Most of you have packed yourselves up, and, and hopefully you've gotten some things that can help you today to, to know why you believe what you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we could just all just have it real still here for just a minute. There's no doubt some of you that are here this morning that are still outside of a relationship with Jehovah God. And that is because you've never called upon the name of the Lord to save you. What a great place for us to end here with what Joel said. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We've all got a problem. Our sin has separated us from a holy God. So the holy God became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ who was God, Jehovah God, in human flesh, who on that cross took your sin upon Him to pay the penalty of your sin so that you could have your sin removed and have a relationship with God. And folks, contrary to popular opinion, we're not on this planet to make a lot of money, to get a nice house and drive a nice car, wear stylish clothes and take a two-week vacation and have a dog in a big backyard. We're on this planet to have a relationship with God. And you know what? It's not just a big fat leap of faith. God has given you a book that is infallible. That is, I mean, did you see the way that it, it just all fit together today and how the Bible is a self-defining book? It's not just up to man's opinion. If we study it and we compare Scripture with Scripture as we've been taught to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13, you know what? This book is the message that God loves you, that He wants to have a relationship with you. And I believe beyond any shadow of a doubt that He's brought you to this service today so that you'd be convinced of that truth 
that you find out what life is really all about. It's all about coming into a relationship with God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, Jehovah God. And check it out. The one true God of this universe this morning has opened up His arms of love to you and says, I want to have a relationship with you. But the thing that hinders that is your sin. Now, will you come to me that your sin might be removed? That's the call of Jesus on your life this morning. Let's, let's bow our heads. Now, Lord, I, I pray this morning for, for folks that are in this room that have never entered into a, a personal relationship. I, I pray that today that they would understand very assuredly who You are and what it is that You've done. And I pray that people would be saved this morning. The Lord... We ask You now by Your Spirit to convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We pray, Father, that You would draw people to Yourself today that they may be eternally saved before it's too late. Lord, I pray that You'd give them the courage to respond in faith to You this morning. And I pray that all of us would take these truths that we've seen this morning and we would be very diligent with them. May we know why we believe and may we, as you, you've instructed us to do, may we shut the mouths of the gainsayers to the skillful use of your book. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.